Well, we're going to be opening our Bibles tonight to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. But before I, I read this passage of scripture here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I just wanted to mention how much I appreciate being back in North Carolina. It's really different than Taiwan. It's different than California. And you know, a lot of that has to do with the gospel. You find a Christian presence here that's less common in other parts of the world, and you really miss it when you're abroad. I was just driving through McDonald's the other morning, and you know that as that young lady gave me my food, what she told me before I drove off was, God bless you. She told me that, and that really encouraged me. You know, she didn't have to say that. She didn't know what manner of person I was. She didn't know that I wasn't some, you know, liberal transplant from out of state, that I wouldn't take offense by that, but she did it joyfully. She did it without fear, and I was grateful for it. You know, in a way, it also challenged me. God does that to you sometimes. He'll use something small like that to, to challenge you, just in case you thought that you didn't need to be challenged like that. He humbles you that way, and I was really grateful for that. And, uh, and the Bible teaches us in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 through 8, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God. There's a lot of fear in this world today. And you see that. And if the devil can make us afraid to the point of silencing us, even to the point of not witnessing, not training men, not sending men out, then really all hope for our world is lost. But even worse than that, because that means that we will have sinned against our God. We will have disobeyed his command to go. And the Bible teaches us to be partakers of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, because God has given us the power to overcome the afflictions that are in this world, the fears that plague our world. And as we'll see this evening, many times that power and grace that God gives us comes through the blessing of church fellowship. So I'd like us to read here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 15 this evening. It begins with, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God, insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore... As ye abound in everything, in faith, and utterance, and knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And herein I give my advice, for this is expedient for you, who have begun before, not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. Now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. For I mean not that other men be eased, and ye be burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality. As it is written, he that hath gathered much hath nothing over, and he that hath gathered little hath no lack. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your holy word this evening, God. We thank you for the power that it has, God, and how it cleaves, Lord, deep within us, Lord, the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, God, and how it can discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. So I pray, God, that you would work this evening, God. Help me to be able to clearly communicate this message to the prophet of your servants, Lord, and I'll give you the glory for what you perform to this evening, Lord. I thank you in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen. All right, when we read this passage, what we're reading here is a letter to the local church of Corinth. However, in the context of peripheral chapters, the Apostle Paul is actually strengthening the fellowship between churches. We know him as a church planner, but you know the Apostle Paul is also a church strengthener. And we have the church at Corinth, the churches in Macedonia, and then we have the church in Jerusalem. And they are all related to one another. I can't emphasize that enough. They weren't just picking each other out of a, a big wheelbarrow full of hay, but that they were actually connected and that God connected them. The church in Jerusalem planted the church in Antioch, which planted the churches in Corinth and Macedonia. And they used men to do this, of course, and later they used men to collect this relief fund, if you will, for the church in Jerusalem. And I'll explain shortly why they did that. Here, Paul is preparing the church at Corinth to share the wealth which God provided them with the church in Jerusalem. And he's reminding them of their indebtedness to the Jewish believers. After all, if there weren't first a church in Jerusalem, they wouldn't be there. And we wouldn't be here. Amen? And when you think about it, all true New Testament churches are in some way indebted to other true New Testament churches. Each true New Testament church is made of different people, but we follow the same Lord. We face different problems, but we receive the same grace of God to overcome those problems. We fight different battles, but we stand by the same faith in God's word, and we do it together. We're sitting in Calvary's 60th anniversary last week. We're listening to Pastor Mitchell preach, and something dawned on me. None of last week's blessings would be possible without church fellowship. We have evangelists from around the world, pastors from around the world. The churches that were represented there know each other. They train men together, send out missionaries together. They pastor together. Their young men marry their young ladies. And their children, despite being raised in different corners of the world, can all play together. And it serves as a reminder that there is hope for humanity and that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We're of the same family in the Lord. And just like a family, we must look out for one another. And in this passage, we have different types of churches, a church of Jews, a church of Greeks, and a church of Macedonians. And despite their racial and their cultural backgrounds, all those differences are overcome by a love for Jesus Christ and a love for one another. We know what the Teals believe because of Midcoast. Midcoast knows what we believe because of Lighthouse. And we love each other, we pray for one another, and we help each other stay faithful. We don't make ourselves, we don't raise ourselves, we don't teach ourselves individually nor collectively. It's God who makes us, and it's also God who builds his church. And one of the ways that God does this is by building his church's fellowship with other churches. Through the men in these churches, but more importantly, through the churches in this passage, God is sending grace to help the churches to overcome the world. Three ways in which the churches overcome through church fellowship this evening. Number one, we see the overcoming famine in Jerusalem. That's the first, overcoming famine in Jerusalem. Let's turn to Romans chapter 15, verse 25 to 28. Romans chapter 15, and we'll be looking at verse 25 to 28. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this, and I have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. It would seem that although this fruit, this relief fund, if you will, would be delivered to the saints in Jerusalem, that Paul never would take that trip into Spain. And as God's servants, you know, we realize that God's plans take priorities over ours. And we stay receptive to that. We stay receptive to his will for his servants. But we also stay receptive to, his, to, to our circumstances because we know God is sovereign. Amen? And all those are within his control. But Jerusalem, to the praise of God, would receive this gift. And I think that might have been not so easy for the church of Jerusalem to do. In fact, it most likely would have been extremely humbling for them, considering the source of the gift, but also the deliverer of the gift. Remember, at one time, this was, in fact, the megachurch at Jerusalem. And if there ever was a good megachurch, this was a good megachurch. Because it had over 3,000 members, at least, after Peter preached at Pentecost. They were also Jews who had long prided themselves on being God's people, and they still are, amen? They still are. Christ is their Messiah. Even if they don't accept him, he is our Christ, our Lord, but he is their Messiah. And they would have never considered fellowship with Gentiles, nor would they have considered fellowship with barbarians, except God told Peter in Acts chapter 10, what God hath cleansed, call not thou common. Aren't you glad he told Peter that? Amen. But even afterwards, we know that Peter was still a bigoted Jew, even to the point of being rebuked by Paul at Antioch in Galatians chapter 2. Now, this is Paul. Think about this. Paul, Pharisee of a Pharisee, the very man who made havoc of the early church, 
arresting Christians. Would you receive his gift? Would I? I mean, what, would you forgive him? You know, what if he had arrested members of my own family? What if he even had members of my own family executed? But God changes things, amen? And God changes people. He totally changes people. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And we need to remember that God does that for other people too, not just for us. Because since Paul was converted, the church at Jerusalem had been through oppression, alienation, famine, double taxation. Their pastor, James, was killed with the sword. And they were most likely reduced to the core of their church. Those believers who were determined to follow Jesus to the very end. And I believe that all true New Testament churches have that core. But it's just that some have more wood and clay. But Paul loved them. And he was determined to help them. Let's turn to 1 John 3.14. 1 John chapter 3, 14. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. The Bible says here, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. You know that means it's a trait of being saved? Saul hated Christians, but Paul loved them. It's not taught. It's intrinsic to our new nature in Christ. We love our family. We took Timothy to the zoo last Tuesday, and while we were there, we got to see a bee exhibit. And in the bee exhibit, they have a queen bee. We know who she is because she's got a little pink dot on her back. And she just kind of goes about her business, you know, crawling through the hive and all. And when she comes out, sorry, and as she comes out, all the different bees kind of make a little circle for her. And they kind of let her go wherever she is. It's almost like a a reverence for their queen bee. They just kind of get out of her way. And they let her go wherever she wants to go. And, you know, no one had to train those bees to do that. God sealed it in them to take care and to reverence their queen bee. And in such a way... God seals within us the Holy Spirit, and we have a love for our Christian family. We have a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll pray for them. We'll give for them. We'll take care of them. We'll do what we can to help them. And it doesn't have to be taught to us. You know, we live in a society, and in our society, they hate its own citizens because of political affiliation, because of race, because of their support of authority. And I'm here to tell you this this evening that their hate has nothing to do with any of those things. It's because they haven't passed from death into life. I minister in Taipei, Taiwan, and pretty much everybody there is of one race. Pretty much everybody in Taipei is of one political affiliation. They're mostly all blue party members. But you know what? They still hate each other. And they treat each other horribly. They extort money from each other. They abuse each other. They're incredibly rude to one another. Yet they still refer to each other as brother, sister, auntie, uncle, grandpa, grandma. And when they're not calling each other these names or running each other off the road, you say, well, what's the problem with this society? It's because they haven't passed from death into life. 
and you look at everything that Cain had in common with Abel, and yet he still murdered his own brother, it's because he abided in death. On the other hand, what did the Macedonians have in common with the church in Jerusalem? They had this in common. And this is all we need to have. That's why our conference last week was so blessed by God. That's why we love our sister churches. That's why we pray for one another. And we love each other because God first loved us. Number two, I want us to see the overcoming poverty in Macedonia. I don't think it's strange that Paul would have used the Macedonian churches to stir up a Greek church like Corinth. You see, the Macedonians and the Greeks were longtime rivals with one another. It was Philip of Macedon who united all of Greece in 338 BC, and they were known by the Greeks as barbarians. And when Paul wrote that he was a debtor to the Greeks and also to the barbarians in Romans chapter 1, verse 14, it's with the Macedonians in mind. So although by Jewish and Greek standards, these might have been simple folk, they were also some of the most faithful churches that Paul planted. Churches like Thessalonica, Berea, Philippi. And they were God using the simple things of the world to confound the wise. But they were poor churches. And we don't really understand this level of poverty living in America you know, maybe in Appalachia or, or the bayou of Louisiana, maybe somewhere in Alaska that's completely off the grid. But the Bible teaches us that it's better to, than, it's better to give than to receive. But when you've, what you've received amounts to this level of poverty, well, that takes a different quality of faith altogether. It's not just that you're in poverty, but, you know, it's that your family's in poverty. It's that your church is in poverty. And the Greek word for their poverty basically means dirt, bottom, poor. And to make matters worse, they were afflicted. And the Greek word thipsis, which usually means afflicted by the world. So they were oppressed, they were persecuted, and they were attacked by unbelievers on top of being poor. The Bible's point is that there should have been no way that these Macedonian churches should have been able to give the way that they did. But they did. And they had joy doing it. I ask you this evening, have you ever been stretched beyond your ability? Have you ever reached your limit, the point where you think you have nothing left, the point of no return, and it's there that you find the grace of God? You know, the Macedonians didn't give blindly. They gave knowing how much they had to give, and then they gave more than that figure. They found that widow's oil. They claimed the promises of God regarding their needs. They found that God will never be outgiven. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 26. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 26. Here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 26, it reads, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much 
better than they. God will provide for his children. He will take care of you, whether it's here in Roseville, North Carolina, or Taipei, Taiwan. And he always provides. And the Bible teaches us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8, that it is with food and raiment that we should be content. But this is important. The Macedonians, believers, they didn't just give alone. They didn't just give as sheep without a flock or as rogue Christians. They didn't give because some preacher on their television told them to donate to his favorite cause. They did this as a church. In fact, they did it in fellowship with other churches, and they did this knowing the mind of Christ regarding what they gave. They did it by doing what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. They first gave their own selves to the Lord. And when you do that, there's nothing that the Lord can't do through you. You know, when we first moved down here to North Carolina, I was working for a company called TD Ameritrade as an investment broker. And when God called us into the ministry, he really impressed on me the importance of quitting my job. Because I couldn't take the Bible Institute and work 12 hours a day. There just was no way. And after all, I felt also that with the growth that I had in Christianity, I shouldn't be working for that kind of company anyways. So I was going to quit my job. And for a while, I had no work. The Bilers took us to the Outer Banks, and I used my, my banking skills to beat their kids at quite a few board games. And we had, a, we had a wonderful time. I had no worry in the world. I knew my Lord would take care of me. And when we got back, it was like a week later that I was accepted in employment at the credit union. And that was the safest place for me to be because in 2008, the Great Recession would hit. And if I had still been with that company, I would have been laid off long ago. If I would worked for a bank, I would have been laid off long ago. But with the credit union, I was safe. And the Lord enabled us to adopt our son, Timothy. And that was the same year that they had the adoption tax credit. And that covered all, every expense that we had. And we had a son in our home. The Lord provides. The Lord doesn't just know what you can give. He also knows the future. He knows what you'll be able to give, and he knows how to enable you to give it. He knows the seven years of plenty, amen? But he also knows the seven years of famine. And he knows how to put you exactly where you need to be to endure it. And we just have to place ourselves in his hands, in his church, and in his fellowship. And he will use us. We just have to be like the Macedonian believers. We have to be first of a willing mind. Number three, I want us to see overcoming excess in Corinth. And let's go back to 2 Corinthians while we're at it. Now, from 1 Corinthians, we know that the church at Corinth had been through a lot, amen? But they had also had a lot. And sometimes, having too much can be dangerous. So, Paul sought equality among the churches because that is often the best place for church fellowship to be. These were Gentiles, like us. The Greeks were also very competitive people, also like us. And they prided themselves 
on being the most advanced society ever known to man. They were pioneers of engineering, philosophy, poetry. Two of those three are okay. They harnessed steam, developed mathematics. They birthed the Olympics. And often when Paul is using illustrations of running, wrestling, boxing, it's because he's preaching to the Gentiles. They were into that competition. They understood it. But here, he's using the churches in Macedonia, their northern barbarian impoverished nation, to challenge the church at Corinth. Because although the Macedonians were poor, that didn't prevent them from giving, from actually finding joy doing it. When Paul found Corinth, they were competing with things like who baptized who, who had the most spiritual gifts, who was the best preacher, and so on. Good thing churches don't do that today, amen. And they were carnal. They were competing in things that didn't really matter. Paul basically says, okay, you want a challenge. Prove the sincerity of your love. Abound in this grace also. Perform the doing of it. Because as you do it, God does it through you. Just keep the promises that you make to God because our love will never measure up to the love that Jesus Christ had for us. Verse 9 reads, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty he might be rich. Aren't you glad that God didn't hold bad grace from you? Aren't you glad that he didn't return evil for evil? but good for evil, not giving us what we deserve, but having mercy on his enemies. So we know tonight that no matter what we give, no matter how faithful we are, no matter how much we serve God, God will always give more. We will always be indebted to the Lord, always be indebted to his churches, and always be indebted to his gospel. And if the Lord tarries long enough, As a church, we're going to encounter every form of trial. I mean, that's the world. But through helping other churches through their trials, the churches that God puts us into fellowship with, we're also going to learn how to overcome those same trials. It's as Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4.16, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. As you minister to others you actually establish yourself in the faith that saved you. And that's why I am so grateful to be able to minister to others. It's not just for the good of their soul. It's for the good of mine also. It's for the encouragement and the feeding that I receive from the Lord as I do it. It's also important to understand tonight that opportunities don't always come as often as we'd like. So when trials come, the opportunity to minister and the opportunity to abound in grace also comes with those opportunities. We shouldn't be afraid of trials. We should embrace them, knowing that God will show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. And many times, what we do during those critical moments of our lives will determine how our lives go. The church at Corinth had this precious moment. It was a precious moment, not for Macedonia, not for the church at Jerusalem, but for the church at Corinth to fulfill their oath to God. 
And Paul and Titus were not going to let them miss it. Amen. Paul was reminding them that their time to express gratitude to their God for the gospel had arrived. Titus was coming. Praise the Lord as Christians, as churches, we're not alone. We have help seizing those opportunities from God. Sometimes the devil might try to convince you that you, that you can't serve. You know, he might try to convince you there's nothing you can do. There's no difference you can make. But if your roots to your church are strong, and if your church's fellowship with sister churches is strong, well, the devil will have a hard time convincing you that you are. Paul was a great servant of the Lord, but do you know that he was rarely alone? Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 1 to 5. Acts chapter 20, verse 1 to 5. It reads in Acts chapter 20, verse 1, And after the uproar was seized, this was at Ephesus, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece. And there abode three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him, as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. And there accompanied him into Asia, Sopater, Aburia, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secondus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. These going before tarried for us at Troas. You know, some of these men may not mean a whole lot to us. I mean, I, I never read the book of Sopater. I never read First or Second Derby. I never read the Chronicles of Aristarchus. But I guarantee that these men meant a lot to Paul. Paul was always dropping names in the epistles. And you know what that teaches me? That he was thankful. He appreciated his Christian fellowship. And we need to as well. Because in those critical moments of life, we find our opportunities to serve through that fellowship. We find the opportunities that the Lord gives us to abound in grace. Do we appreciate it? Do we look out for them? Do we seize them as the Macedonian churches did and as Paul and Titus are begging Corinth to do? Do we appreciate our Christian fellowship? 